0: Revelation without fear. I'm John Hamilton. This special podcast series takes you line by line, verse by verse, through the most mysterious book in the entire Bible. Well, last week we started talking about something that plays a pretty big role in the book of Revelation as we were into chapter 17. and We talked about Mystery Babylon. Mystery Babylon the Great. and Mystery Babylon was portrayed as this this wicked woman who's seated aboard, uh, seated on, on this beast. And we, we see in that chapter last week that she was used by 10 kings who were represented by the the horns on the beast. Um, and of course, this is kind of symbolic of both the dragon, who is Satan, and the beast, who is, uh, who is the antichrist, if you will. We, very similar uh, imagery in all of these, so we know that they're all associated with Satan. Um, so she's used by these 10 kings who arise, but as soon as the The beast is done with her. He turns against her, and he commands everybody, worship only the beast. And uh, in the last chapter, she's described as a woman. But now the vision's going to change a little bit, and Babylon is going to be expressed as a a city. Revelation chapter 18, which is where we'll pick it up here, beginning at verse 1, says this, After this... I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. I love that. The earth was illuminated by his splendor. The, the, the word there is also sometimes translated by his glory. This is an angel who's come down fresh from the presence of the Lord. And, and you know, he, pardon me, he's glowing. I mean, and, and, and the earth is affected by this, this radiance. Um, I don't think that's to be missed, by the way. And with a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the Great. Now, the subject of the previous chapter is Babylon, or specifically, mystery Babylon. All the previous chapter. So this angel starting this chapter, making this announcement, it seems kind of rather obvious that this angel is talking about the same Babylon as the last chapter. Rather obvious unless you happen to be a theologian. (laughs) There can be a, of course, there's going to be debate among scholars as to whether or not this is the first Babylon or the second Babylon. Um, some insist that the Lord is speaking of two manifestations of Babylon. One, a religious system called Babylon, and the other, a physical city or a commercial system called Babylon. Of course, the other camp believes that these two are the one, we're all talking about the same thing when we're talking about Babylon. Um, there are Definite similarities between the Babylon described in Revelation 17 and the Babylon described in Revelation 18. Both are under the rule of the Antichrist. Both have ruling queens. Both are filled with blasphemy. Both hate the saints. Both shed the blood of the saints. Both are associated with various kings, and the relationships are described as fornication. Both are under judgment. Both are destroyed. But there's also some differences. The the Babylon described in Revelation 17 is... Typified as a woman, an immoral woman, uh, guilty of religious abominations, and she's destroyed by a political power that had previously supported her. In the Babylon of Revelation 18, what they sometimes call commercial Babylon as opposed to mystery Babylon, she symbolizes a great city, uh, identified as a port city, which is, by the way, not identified in chapter 17. Uh, It's talked about being a a habitation, a great marketplace, a lot of business. It's guilty of greed and self-indulgence, as we read. And then it's destroyed by a sudden act of God. So, especially among futurists who tend to see all prophecies as literal future events, there is a lot of debate. I tend to think that sometimes theologians in general, but especially those who specialize in eschatology or end-time events, Bible prophecy... I think they think too hard sometimes. <laughs> it, it could be they could be different, but both could be true of the same city or system. It could be figurative and literal. Sometimes sometimes things in Bible prophecy seem to conflict, but they ultimately don't. Say that again. Sometimes things in in, in fact in scripture in general. Sometimes you'll see things that you think are in conflict until you learn a little bit more. I remember when I was early in my walk with the Lord, I, I got thrown off a couple of times because I would see some things, and, and and of course, people who are who are only slightly knowledgeable of the Scripture will say there's conflicts in the Bible until you study a little deeper. And then when you begin to study a little deeper, gain a little knowledge of the original language, and these suddenly those conflicts begin to disappear. It's true in prophecy as well. Because let me give you an example. Let's look at let's look at what the Old Testament says about the coming of the Messiah, right? Jesus was prophesied. He was coming. And, and for example, Micah in Micah 5.2 says that the Messiah will come out of Bethlehem. Hosea in Hosea 11.1 says the Messiah will come out of Egypt. Which is it? Malachi said the Messiah would come to the temple. Zechariah said the Messiah would come to Zion. Isaiah said the Messiah will come. Come to Galilee. Now, when we look at the life of Jesus, we go, well, that's obvious. All of those are true. They're not in conflict. We have 20-20 hindsight, don't we? But can you imagine the debate among the Pharisees? He's, he's got to come out of Egypt. He's going to be from Egypt. He's going to be an Egyptian, the Messiah. Oh, that's crazy. He's going to come he's gonna become from Bethlehem. It's all true, wasn't it? Born in Bethlehem, fled into Egypt, came out of Egypt. From Nazareth, all of it's true. Yes, he came to the temple, which is, which is on Mount Moriah, but he also came to Zion. First of all, he was tried at the house of Caiaphas on Zion. All of those things were true, but we know that. Now, if we can apply the same principle with humility when we read prophecies like Revelation, we, we might learn a little bit of something, huh? Yeah. See, Babylon is falling could mean multiple senses at different times. One could be symbolic throughout the ages. One could be an event in the middle of the Great Tribulation. One could be an event at the end of the Great Tribulation. All of that could be simultaneously true. It's interesting, this passage we're going to be reading more of in Revelation 18 is very much in the style of the Old Testament prophecies about wicked cities. In Isaiah 13 and 14, the original Babylon was prophesied, the, the literal city of Babylon was prophesied against. In Jeremiah 50 and 51, they're very similar passages. Looks a lot like this. Ezekiel prophesied against Tyre, the city of Tyre, and Ezekiel 26 through 28. And though we know he was prophesying against a literal city, as you get into the last of those three chapters where he's prophesying, he begins to actually prophesy against Satan. He begins to talk about, I mean, and he's prophesying against the king of Tyre, but all of a sudden it begins to shift. And almost theologians almost universally read that passage and realize he's not just talking about the king of Tyre because he says, you were in the Garden of Eden. Your covering was every precious stone, uh, you know, it, 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 within the, your pipes and tablets, Musical instruments were formed in you on the day you were born. You know, you were lifted up in your heart. All of these things, but it begins as a prophecy against Tyre. But see, there's a prophetic parallel there, wasn't he? It was almost like Satan himself was so inspiring the king of Tyre that as the Lord begins to speak this prophecy, he's prophesying not just against an earthly king, but against Satan. Now, I realize it's a lot simpler to go, prophecy is a prediction and a fulfillment, and you write it down in your book. But that's not the reality of biblical prophecy. And if I can communicate anything to you in this series, I want you to understand that prophecy has depth in life. As I've said many times, the Word of God is living and active. Okay, it's not just static on a page. It is resonating. It is reverberating with every fiber of human existence. And yes, prophecies repeat themselves over and over and over on this earth because those words are true. That's the nature of prophecy. Some look at Revelation 18 and believe that there will be a future. Babylon rebuilt on the Euphrates River in the Middle East, in Iraq. They literally believe that um, there is this. This is now pretty much a desolated area. And, and Saddam Hussein went to great lengths to rebuild the city of Babylon. I don't know if you're aware of this. That's actually what's called the Ishtar Gate there from Nebuchadnezzar's era. It, it, they dug it out. They did a lot of restoration. A lot of the ancient Babylon reliefs. If you ever go to Paris. And visit the Louvre Museum. Um, you've seen some of this. Some I'm getting some nods here. There is an amazing, amazing, amazing uh, display of the actual carvings and relief from Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And you can walk among the, the walls and the reliefs and the drawings that Daniel saw every day. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. Um, Napoleon was a great archaeological thief. He stole from everything. And so a lot of it is, is now in the Louvre Museum in Paris, and a lot of it's preserved because of that. So, um, uh, but Saddam Hussein really tried to, he had an idea, I think he thought he was gonna turn it into a tourist attraction at some point. Uh, shortly before the first Gulf War, I was invited to travel to Iraq, at the, actually at the expense of the Iraqi government, and I turned it down, and I'm really glad I did. <laughs> at the time, I was co hosting a daily radio show with a pastor. And this pastor was absolutely convinced. He taught a lot on Bible prophecy. He was convinced that a literal Iraq was going to be rebuilt. He had visited there, and there was enough interest in this radio program and all this kind of stuff that that the tourism people there in Iraq wanted to uh, draw people there. And uh, I put off the invitation, just didn't feel good about it. And the next thing you know, bombs were falling. and There was that little thing called the invasion of Kuwait. Some of you are old enough to remember. But there are Bible scholars, or I would say, no, Bible scholars isn't the word. Bible prophecy enthusiasts who believe that the ancient city of Babylon will be chosen for the Antichrist and his capital, and they will very quickly and rapidly try to rebuild a literal city. And if that, of course, happens, you'd have crafts from, from all over the world coming. As they paint this scenario, you'd have, immediately have a lot of business happening. You'd have a lot of enterprise happening. You'd have a lot of money changing hands. If someone was very rapidly building a major world capital, uh, it, it would be an economic boom, right? And so that's the picture that sometimes get painted um, if it became a world banking and a world commerce center. Um, uh, so because of that and because of some Bible prophecies that suggest that the world uh, prospers initially within the Antichrist reign, that's where a lot of that, those kind of thinking. It is technically possible, we must admit, that a literal city of Babylon might be rebuilt someday that doesn't currently exist. Um It's also possible that Babylon is a present city that takes on the role as described here in Revelation 18. Um, I'm reminded that in 1 Peter 5.13, Peter says this phrase, he said, she who is at Babylon sends her greeting. And theologians universally believe that Peter was talking about Rome. You know, he's talking about the church at Rome. She sends her greeting to you. So, that's been that assumption that at that time Babylon was represented by Rome. Other people, as I've mentioned before, believe Babylon was represented by Jerusalem. Some historicists claim that the fall of Rome during the early Christian era in the early 400s may be very well the fall of Babylon that was prophesied here. But whether or not it does happen, I think it's safe to say that the perspective of Babylon and Babylon falling goes well beyond a single city on the banks of the Euphrates River. Babylon is definitely that great satanic system of evil that has corrupted earth's history. From religion to greed to power to lust, the way the world does things that represents the pride of the world from the tower of Babel to the world system. This is how it's done. We are in charge. We have the power, the ultimate humanistic spirit. I think most people would agree that whether it becomes a a literal city, there's certainly a figurative meaning to the concept of Babylon. Presbyterian theologian Donald Barnhouse said it this way, when the Lord was here on earth, he spoke of the great hatred that the world had for him and his own. What is the world but a combination of the religion, government, and commerce? In other words, Babylon in all of its parts stands for that which Christ calls the world. And in a real sense, Babylon, the capital of planet earth, all of our world systems, fault systems, money, power, politics, pleasure, are meeting their doom here in chapter 18. And the great archangel says, fallen, fallen. She has become a haunt or a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird. All the proud achievements of this city or system become the demonic haunts of unclean and horrible creatures. It almost seems like a scene out of a Frank Peretti novel, doesn't it? demonic gargoyles and an unseen realm, for all of the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. Now, that is an interesting expression, the maddening wine of her adulteries. Few things cause smart people to lose every ounce of their brains like sexual sin. Would you agree? We can all make jokes about people talking about thinking with, you know, the other head, whatever, you know. I mean, sorry for saying that, but people say that, you know. People who are smart people who get caught up in something, you go, how could somebody ever done that? How could that man, how could that woman, they're smart, they're educated, they're people who had a ministry or God had used, how could they do that? It was so dumb. And everybody shakes their heads. But when the person was in the moment, was living in that situation, they get into actually what sometimes a phenomenon counselors refer to as the fog, and suddenly, they can't see what is obvious to everybody else. Scripture seems irrelevant. Yeah, that's true to everybody else, but in my situation, it's an exception. God says, it's okay for me to do this. The only thing that matters is how I feel. Now, as someone who's counseled people in ministry, who've multiple times, sadly, who've gotten into a, a mess, I can tell you that inevitably, almost every guy I've ever talked with at the time felt like it was okay with God. That's the fog. God understands. Or you don't know my situation. And I think that's interesting because when you get to a particular place that all you can, the only logic is based upon your feelings, well, guess what? Just like people do that, nations, peoples grow insane with pleasure-seeking. They become seduced and they lose their minds. They cast wisdom aside. As Paul said it this way, professing themselves to become wise, they have become fools. All right, as you look at our culture today and you look at what is exalted as standing up for, you know, rights, I don't want to get political here tonight, but the truth of the matter is, is I was thinking yesterday about as you see this image of all these people who are uh, women who are dressed in white who are standing for women's rights. And then we've got late-term abortions in the state of New York. Okay, now how many of you know what I'm... Okay, again, I'm not trying to get... I I generally try to avoid it when I speak, but the truth of the matter is that is a great example of what is evil being called good and good being called evil. People have lost their minds. In the midst of pleasure-seeking, logic has gone out the door. In the midst of what I want, what I want, what I want, there is no judgment there is no discernment. Well, it's a condition common to man, isn't it? But here we're seeing this, this culture, this nation, or this city of Babylon who is basically drunk with the maddening wine of her pleasure-seeking. The expression is actually used a lot of times in Scripture. Isaiah uses it when he prophesies against Jerusalem in Isaiah 51, and he says, you have drained to the last drop the cup that makes men stagger. And such is the case with nations who have become insanely intoxicated with the sinful pleasures of the Babylonian system. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Babylon's sin here wasn't just idolatry. It wasn't just fornication. It was greed, selfishly held wealth, by the way, did you know these sins are very closely related? We think of them, okay, greed's over here and sexual sin's over here. Actually, in the Bible, they're closely related. Both are rooted in our flesh, and one leads to another. When Ezekiel was pleading with the Israelites to recognize their sin and to turn, Ezekiel revealed something interesting. This is in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. He said this, now, this was the sin of your sister, Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you had seen. Now, if two minutes ago I looked at you and said, what was the sin of Sodom? Most of you who know your Old Testament would say, homosexuality, right? Linda, just threw it right out. But you see, what Ezekiel's saying was there's actually even a greater root than that. It's fundamentally a lifestyle of pleasure-seeking that led to that. And the pleasure-seeking might have begun by heaping to myself more and more luxuries, being greedy, not caring about others. Fundamentally, it's a lifestyle of selfishness that was the root issue there at Sodom. If you think about that, I think the Lord will give you more insight. It was Sodom's prosperity that led to her selfishness and selfishness that led to her pleasure-seeking and pleasure-seeking that led to perversion. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, that you will not share in her sins so that you will not receive any of her plagues. You know, it might be difficult to imagine that any child of God is in the midst of this system called Babylon But the presence of the angel's cry tells me that Babylon, with its materialistic lure, is something that even the believers have to be on guard against, right? Yeah. Lest you receive of her plagues. Remember when God called Israel out of Egypt and he said, if you obey my word, if you do these things, none of the diseases of the Egyptians will come upon you, right? Fascinating concept there. He's basically saying if you'll live, according to the lifestyle that I'm prescribing. And, and what does Egypt stand for? Egypt always stands for the, the world, right? It's a typology of the world, kind of like Babylon. Egypt, like Babylon, stood as an example of the world's great power, the world's great economic systems, the world's values. And if we have the world's values and we live like the world, we will experience the same plagues that the world has. Now, as I say that, I'm, I'm aware that and I have many times had people send me an email or talk to me and say, you know, brother, when you start talking about living a particular lifestyle, that's legalism. Let me just take a moment to say that there's a big difference between finding your righteousness in works and realizing that God over and over and over in the New Testament tells us to live a life worthy of the calling. He has given us this amazing grace. I love the book of Ephesians because like the first half of it, he's telling us all about this great grace that God's given us. And then then he says, okay, now seeing as how we've received this grace, let me tell you how you ought to live. And to take out the whole great volumes in the New Testament, which Paul and others give us very practical uh, instructions on what it means to live a life that's set apart, that's not like everybody else in the world, for our own good and so that we may be productive as believers, not that we find our righteousness in it. See, there's very practical guidelines for a reason, and you don't receive the same plagues. I mean, if you're faithful to one spouse and treat them the way God says to honor them, it's amazing how long you might stay married. Um, if you love your children it might be amazing if you raise in your, in your home according to certain guidelines and standards you you might see a profitable result uh, you might avoid if in, in a monogamous relationship things like STDs for that matter loneliness okay so if we participate in the world's system we will oftentimes very practical ways experience the plagues and the same problems that the world has. It's not about legalism. It's about going, hmm, you know, God's got a better way. And let me do it his way, because th- th- that's that's good for me. It's good for everybody. Okay? So he says, come out of her so you you don't get messed up with it. The call to depart from the world system from Babylon, its worldliness, is a frequently repeated theme in scripture, not just in Revelation and Isaiah 52. He says, come out from there. Don't touch the unclean thing. Come out from her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Jeremiah says, my people, get out of the midst of her. And In Ephesians, in the New Testament, it says this, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. How about this in 2 Corinthians 6, 14? Don't be yoked together with unbelievers, because what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what does fellowship does light have with darkness, or what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? When he speaks of Belial, he's talking about foolish pleasure seeking. Okay? I can explain that. It's, a, it's both a spirit and a and, and a God type, if you will. Um, but there's no harmony between Christ and, and that kind of foolish, loose living. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk with them, and I'll be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I'll be a father to you. You'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. New Testament, Paul the Apostle. So if I could just make a historical observation, I will tell you that every revival in history has been a revival of holiness in the church. It has been. Well, I missed a good chance to say amen. Every revival in history that has been effective has been a revival of holiness in the church. There's been an emphasis on being not, not reaching the world. I'm, we got to reach the world, but then we choose to live a life that is different and is set apart and is obedient to God's Word. Here's the, here's the pattern. There's usually there's a generation that embraces holiness in a radical way in response to grace. The next generation usually begins to move into legalism. They begin to, they begin to value the externals. And then there's follow, that's followed by a rebellion against the legalism. And then that's followed by a denouncement of that, that, that we need to be free. And then that's followed by complete and total worldliness. <laughs> and then the cycle tends to repeat itself. Just there's a little bit of cycle of revival history that we see that, okay? Verse 5. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she's done. Mix her a double portion from her own cup. Wow. The angel, it's like the sins of Babylon have, have, have piled up. You know, I noticed this. I'm so grateful that the Lord says to believers, as we'll find in Hebrews 8, God says, I will remember their sins no more. To those who are followers of Jesus Christ, we're grateful that he has separated our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. But to those who have rejected Christ, part of the world system who have willingly at this point rejected, he said, God remembered her iniquities. That's, that's a fearful phrase, isn't it? Something you don't have to be afraid of if you know him. But it's something that will be sobering to the world. God gave her back. The Greek word there uh, that this in the King James rendered or, or the NIV gave her back uh, literally means to, to, to pay a debt, apoditomy, to give back what is due. And it says it's, he's giving it back double. He's giving back double. You know, in the double restitution in the Old Testament was what a thief had to do. And so the world, having stolen having a debt to God is being paid double back. Perhaps, actually, this is a commentary on the Babylon itself, that Babylon's wealth may have been gained by ill-gotten means. Okay, that makes sense because thievery may be involved. There's some commentators who, who, who kind of go for that. Give her as much torture and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit as a queen and am not a widow. Now, this passage breaks down Babylon's sins. First of all, there's a sin of self-indulgence. She loved luxuriously. Second of all, there's a sin of pride. She she glorified herself. She says, I sit as a queen. There's also the avoidance of suffering. I will never mourn. I'm insulating myself to make sure I never suffer, that I'm taken care of, Me, 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 it's all about me, right? All these are characteristics, again, of worldliness and materialism. Are you seeing a pattern that this prophecy against Babylon, whether it's a literal city or a figurative city, it's talking about the world system that is eaten up with worldliness and materialism. Verse 8, therefore in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Her plagues come in one day. The destruction of Babylon will come suddenly and completely. Um, This is why many believe that God literally destroys a city associated with, you know, the the world's economic system or at the same time maybe judges the entire world's worldly economic system. Verse 9 when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand afar off and cry, Whoa, O great city, O oh Babylon, city of power, in one hour your doom has come. For a generation or more, from the time of Constantine the Great, until the time of around 410, um, there were many Christians who believed that they were living in the millennial reign. It was actually common thought. Um, what had happened is you'd gone. the church in Europe had gone from being a persecuted minority, persecuted at the hands of the Roman Empire, to within a matter of years, Christianity was the only legal religion in the Roman Empire. And people who were bishops, were leaders within the church, persecuted a few years before suddenly the actually the leaders of governmental positions and systems it's a fascinating tale in history and and yet it's it's very interesting to see how for a generation a lot of concepts like evangelism kind of stopped instead the whole goal was to just absorb the unbelievers and the pagans into culture And there might some would argue there were a lot of mistakes made along the way from a historical perspective but it's interesting because there was a general belief that hey it's happened Christianity has conquered the world. Woohoo! We're in the millennial reign. This is great. That was a common belief, and you can see it in some early church fathers' writings. But then something happened. The Visigoths took Rome in 410. And these are pagans who have conquered this great Christianized holy city. And St. Jerome said it this way. He's actually in Bethlehem. He's translating what we call the, the Vulgate, which is a very famous Latin text. It's like the official Latin Bible that the Catholics use to this day. And uh, Jerome's translating it. He's a cave in Bethlehem. And he hears this word and he says, he says, he says, the city that has taken the world has been taken. How can this be? He absolutely was perplexed. He was amazed. He, he, he grieved. How in the world could such a thing happen? you can understand why some historicists look at this and go, oh, that was that. This, this kind of a worldly version of a, of, a, of a political Christianity was judged. Now, I think that's a way too small a definition. I'll just be honest enough to tell you that. But again, as I've said, history has a t- little way of picking up on these prophetic themes, and we see them expressed over and over and over. This fall, however, seems to be utter. It wasn't temporary. It wasn't just a humbling These world leaders are described as standing off at the distance, looking at the smoke of her burning. The kings couldn't actually be close. This is why some moderns look at this and say, is this a picture of a nuclear disaster in a city? Is this a great city that's been destroyed by a a, a nuclear distance that they must stand off at this distance? It's possible. Again, that's speculation. It's certainly possible. But those who participated in her sins weep, and they wail at the loss. Listen to this in verse 11. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. The cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls, fine linen, purple silk, scarlet cloth, every kind of citron wood, and articles made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages. and bodies and souls of men. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth will stand afar off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn, and they will cry out. Woe, woe, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls, in one hour you have been your great wealth has been brought to ruin so here we're really seeing this image of a city totally and completely brought to ruin by the way there's 28 commodities listed here first of all there's there's the commodities that you might call liquid wealth things that you can quickly turn into cash gold silver diamonds other jewels these are the things we think of the definition of wealth right the basis of almost all economic systems he talks about first. Then he talks about four kinds of cloth, representative of the finest clothing in the world. Then he talks about the most sought-after building materials in the world. We're talking about luxury construction. Next are other luxury items, perfumes and spices. And then he gets into the food groups, oil, wine, flour, wheat, cattle, sheep. Then he starts talking about transportation, horses, chariots. There's nobody walking. Boy, he's hitting all the economic sectors, isn't he? That's interesting. And finally, he says this, and lastly, the bodies and souls of men. The greatest luxury item of all, if I might add, owning your sister or brother, owning another human being. The entire list is a list of indulgent luxuries. And basically, God's message is, hey, guys, The party's over. God gave blessings to men. Men disregarded the Lord who provided, and instead they only heaped to themselves. They ignored the cries of the poor. They overlooked the slave who was used again and again and again to indulge the pleasure of the wicked pleasure seeker. I think of human trafficking when I think about the bodies and souls of men. There's very few profit margins quite like a human body. It can be sold again and again and again. And sadly, we're living in a day and age where it's really not on the decrease. I mean, there's some strides made in certain cities around the world, but it has always been a part of human existence, and it certainly is now. Hmm. The prophets of Babylon have come through the cruel use of others. But God says, you will find them no more at all. The day is coming when it will be done with. It'll be done with. And every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they'll exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They'll throw dust on their heads and weeping and mourning, and they'll cry out, Whoa, oh great city! where all who had ships of the sea became rich through her wealth. And one hour she's been brought to ruin. There it is again. Again, there's not a a lot of comment I have to make on this. It's pretty obvious. Obviously, what we're seeing is all of the world just absolutely in awe and shock at the loss of the wealth in this great city. But by the way, not everybody is sorrowful. Let's look at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints, apostles, and prophets. So the saints, the apostles, how many saints do we got here? Okay. We're not going to be the ones weeping. We're going to be rejoicing. For God has judged her for the way she treated you. And then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. This is actually reminiscent of a passage in in Jeremiah where Jeremiah uh, tells a guy to uh, tie a a stone to the text of Jeremiah and cast it into the Euphrates, and then he says, Thus shall Babylon sink and rise from the evil, and and, and, and they shall be weary. Babylon in the past was thrown down, and I believe the Babylonian system and maybe even a future rebuilt city of Babylon, possibly, will be someday thrown down and not found anymore. What's for sure is the world's systems will pass. God's systems will last. The only people this fall is going to hurt are those who have invested their lives in the mentality of worldliness and materialism. The Bible is pretty clear. All that's going to pass away. And There's no saying, you know, you don't take it with you. And even the world's systems, you know, the names change from generation to generation to generation. Who controls the wealth? Wealth is never destroyed. It's passed from hand to hand to hand, right? And the world's systems just pass from hand to hand to hand. Verse 22, the music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No workman or of any trade will be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of the bride and the bridegroom will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. And her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all who have been killed on the earth. This is pretty graphic and poetic language, but John is describing how the industry of commerce of Babylon will come to an end. When he talks about your magic spells, the, the Greek word there is pharmakia, which which basically is where we get our word pharmacy from. So a lot of times people will point out that this maybe there's drug use associated with this. uh, But one thing for sure, the lure of Babylon is like a drug. It's addiction, right? All the things that people slave for will be passing away, and all of these will eventually fall under the judgment of the world. So why waste time worrying about them? In 1 Timothy 6, I'll end with this one tonight. There's some great words of wisdom. But godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world, and we'll take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith, and they've pierced themselves through with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, who while testified before Pontius Pilate made this good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and glory and might forever a man. Amen. amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. But put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You know, we don't love the things the world loves and we don't value the things that the world values. And I think in this picture, we're definitely seeing a contrast between two cities. We're seeing the city that's set on a hill. That's the church. That's the followers of Jesus Christ and the things that we're supposed to value. And then we see this world system that John sums up with the phrase Babylon. One inevitably ends in destruction. And one is eternal in its existence and cannot pass away. So the only question we need to say is, you know, which one do we want to join? Where do we want to identify with? Amen. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Revelation Without Fear. If you'd like any more information about any of my other teachings, you can find them at johnhamilton.com.